Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. In the part of the year when nighttime dwarfs daytime, it's not surprising that human beings in the Northern Hemisphere, in different countries and different places, would create a season filled with holiday stories. Stories to pass the time, stories to try to make sense of the world, stories with different kinds of truths. The story of light starting to return barely a minute at a time is the story of the winter solstice and offers hope and warmth in the face of cold and snow. And it's a story as reliably true as anything known to humanity. The story of Hanukkah with its miraculously burning lamp also speaks to the yearning for hope and the yearning for a steady source of light in our lives. And the turning of the new year on the Gregorian calendar is often represented by a diaper clad baby entering the scene to replace an old worn out year. And New Year's traditions invite us to close one chapter of our lives and begin writing the next. In a modern day culture that breathlessly values the latest breaking news, these stories, some of which have been around for millennia, are revisited every year. They endure because they offer the familiarity and comfort of tradition, and they meet a human need for ritual, and because they speak to truths about life. Most prominent among these stories is, of course, the story of Christmas. While many of us may be from theological traditions that appreciate the narrative for its beauty and metaphor rather than for its veracity, the story itself is a powerful one, one with universal themes and elements that are not hard to relate to. Every one of us has a birth story, and every one of us started off life as a beautiful, vulnerable baby. Every human being at some point or another has wished for someone to come along and save us, perhaps even more so in the past few years. And every one of us needs reasons to be hopeful and to carry on. The Christmas story has enduring appeal not because everyone thinks it's true, but because it addresses many aspects about the human condition. It's a story worth knowing and reflecting on, even for humanists and non-Christians. Perhaps not as a source of strength, but at least as one source for helping us understand our world. Whenever I talk about Christmas, I like to review the basics of the Christmas narrative. I do this because more and more people in the U.S. are growing up outside of Christianity. And given that most ministers in America share the exact same Christmas story every year at this time, I think it's okay for us to do a little review too. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, Mary, a virgin, is pregnant because God has made her so, in fulfillment of prophecy. Mary and Joseph aren't married, and they go to Bethlehem because the emperor put out a decree calling for each man to go to his hometown for a census. There are no empty rooms for them to stay in in Bethlehem, and so after Jesus is born, he is placed in a manger, which is a box that livestock eat from. Angels announce the birth to nearby shepherds who come to see the baby. A bright star above Bethlehem helps draw some wise men to the site, and they bring the famous gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Soon after, King Herod, feeling threatened by the power of this newly arrived Messiah, 
issues a decree to have all baby boys killed. But Mary, Joseph, and Jesus escape and make it safely to Egypt. What I find interesting is that in the four books of the Bible dedicated to the life of Jesus, only two include the story of his birth, and they each tell it quite differently. The decree that sends the family to Bethlehem is in one version of the story, and King Herod's death decree is in the other. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh are in one gospel, and the manger is in another. And it's just a manger. There is no reference to a stable or a barn. Some sources have it as a cave. And there's actually no mention of animals at all. No ox and no lamb, and for that matter, no drummer boy. And while the wise men are commonly described as being a group of three, the Bible doesn't actually provide a number. This reminds me of the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, the well-known chapters of Genesis, in which Adam and Eve are instructed not to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In much of the Western world, people think of the fruit as an apple, but the earliest texts just say fruit. Over the centuries, translators and artists filled in the blank by offering everything from figs to grapes to even a mushroom. If all the details aren't in a story, readers and listeners will fill in the gaps based on their own ideas and perspectives. John Dietrich founded Congregational Humanism here at FUS more than 100 years ago. And speaking before this congregation in 1924, he gave an address called, What and Why is Christmas? He offered his candid assessment of Christmas, including his doubts and skepticism about the story. And he did this at a time when Minnesota and the United States were more overwhelmingly Christian than they are now. In the address, Dietrich notes the plethora of holidays that existed on December 25th, long before the narratives about Jesus were written. For Greeks, the date was the birthday of Hercules. For Romans, it was the date to celebrate the solstice. And Dietrich is among the scholars who think that the church put Christmas on December 25th to capitalize and steal the pageant's thunder. Jesus's birthday is not mentioned in the Bible and was not celebrated during the first few centuries of the Christian church. Why did the church select this day already universally celebrated as the birthday of Jesus, Dietrich asks. The answer, he says, is because it was already universally celebrated. The church found this day a universal festival, fast fixed in the hearts of the people. They could not uproot it, so they took the more practical course of adopting and rechristening it. Or, as my partner pointed out, they didn't rechristen it, they christened it. Dietrich describes Christmas and Christianity as having been born into a world where carols and garlands and gift-giving and decorating trees already had long existed and were old news. Also, virgin births and saviors were not uncommon in the religions and mythologies of the time. So the story of Christmas and the holiday's trappings were not fully original to begin with. They were recorded differently by different biblical authors and then had more traditions and trappings added on. And that was well before modern industrialized commerce took over Christmas. As Dietrich said, this festival is universal and human rather than sectarian and theological. Although Dietrich had his analysis of Christmas, he still found plenty of value in Jesus as a teacher and in the Christmas story and holiday. And it's striking how many of his words from that 1924 address seem to describe the challenges of our present day. 
We talk about the reign of justice and injustice seems to triumph. We talk about the growth of intelligence and yet see the masses of people running wild after every folly. We talk about good conquering evil and yet all about us there is so much of evil and its consequences. Is it not a wonder that people have faith and hope at all? And yet that eternal hope continues to live and in spite of everything, humanity will believe. And Christmas, Dietrich says, is simply the burst of this belief into song. The triumph of right, the triumph of love, the fresh incoming of the divine air into the world. It is the festival in its spiritual sense of that faith which in the present ill describes the far off features of the coming good. Through the snowstorms, it sees June. Above the howling blasts of December, it hears bird songs. Beneath the snow, it recognizes the thrill of seeds that promise harvest. Across the storm cloud of war, it beholds the bow of peace. The America Dietrich inhabited was still recovering from the great evils of World War I, which at the time was naively referred to as the war to end all wars. And we in our own time live in a country that is struggling to recover from a series of deadly evils and challenges that may be close to easing, but are far from disappearing. The need for holidays, for stories, for hope is something ever present in human history. Also present in human history is the malleability of even the most tradition bound of holidays. And this is welcome news in this year like no other. Many of us are suspending our usual holiday scripts because of the realities of the pandemic, finding ways to make do or new ways to engage old traditions. This past weekend, for example, our congregation's winter solstice festivities moved online. Solstice is normally a four hour celebration held two nights in a row with dinner, singing, dancing, hundreds of people. This year's celebration was instead a one hour video program followed by an online social time. It was a safe and beautiful tribute to our long standing tradition. And while we certainly missed being together, more people were able to watch online than are usually able to attend in person. There are sometimes gifts hidden in these hard times. But appreciating whatever upsides and lessons we may experience during the pandemic does not change the reality that this is a very difficult holiday season for many people in our congregation and across the country. Loved ones who have died of COVID or other causes leave empty spaces in our homes and in our hearts. Family and friends who have gotten together every Christmas for generations are spending the holidays apart, causing heartache and loneliness for parents, kids, grandparents, and friends. And these difficult choices are leading to tensions, disagreements, and disappointments. And the economic fallout, aggravated by elected officials playing politics with people's livelihoods and lives, means that millions of people are focused not on holidays, but on avoiding eviction or finding shelter, looking for work or looking for food. And all of these challenges are aggravated by the risk of the virus. Times like these can make it easier to understand why a story about the arrival of a powerful savior is so widely embraced. Just as, it, just as it is very human to share in the joy of a new baby or to relate to the feeling that there is no room at the inn for us, it's very human to hope for a savior in difficult times, times of cold and darkness. 
For human beings who have felt powerless, who have been let down by their fellow human beings and by the communities or countries where they live, the story of Jesus as a companion through life and as a powerful and perhaps preferential savior can have lasting appeal. But stories about saviors can also present grave challenges. Such stories can lead to great divisions. People have been arguing with each other and killing each other for thousands of years over whom God truly favors and whom Jesus will save. This is why our universalist ancestors were such radicals. They believed every last person was saved. And as I have said in Christmas's past, I'm wary of stories that rely on a single savior. History, of course, has many prominent heroes whose efforts have helped millions of people, from Rosa Parks to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, by the way, turns 80 years old today. But a common characteristic of people who help others is that, is that they will almost always tell you that they are not saviors and that they didn't do it alone. And so for humanists and others who believe in the importance of human effort, who believe that people have a responsibility to save each other from the problems of this world, Christmas is a good time to remember that the work is ours to do. The teachings of everyone from John Dietrich to Jesus himself call on us to serve our, serve our ideals by serving others so that more of us may thrive in all the seasons of life. As we've done the past few years during the assembly just before Christmas, I wanna conclude with some words from Howard Thurman. Thurman was an African-American theologian, Baptist minister and civil rights advocate who was a mentor to Dr. King. Thurman's brief poem is called The Work of Christmas. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers, and to make music in the heart. May the music in our hearts bring us warmth this holiday season, and I wish a Merry Christmas to all. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org. 